0: Welcome to the High Performance Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Sindra Campoff, and thank you so much for joining me here today for episode 571 with Dr. Robin Veely. I have to tell you, this interview is incredible. It exceeded my expectations with a pioneer in sports psychology, and you can tell that she is a pioneer because of the value that's provided in this podcast episode. I can't wait to hear what you think and what you get from today's episode with Dr. Robin Veeley. Let me tell you a little bit about Robin Veeley. We focus today on the science and practice of confidence, and she is a professor in the Department of Sport Leadership and Management at Miami University in Ohio. Her research has focused on self-confidence, burnout, mental skills training, and coaching effectiveness. She's authored five books. One of my favorite books called The Coaching for the Inner Edge, which I use actually in my coaching psychology class that I teach at the university, She's also written other books, including Best Practice for Youth Sport, Competitive Anxiety in Sport, and Successful Coaching. She's published over 60 journal articles and book chapters in sports psychology, and has made over 200 presentations at national, international audiences. She's worked as a consultant with USA Nordic ski team, USA field hockey, elite golfers, And she is a former college basketball player and coach and now enjoys the mental challenge of golf, which you'll hear in today's episode. In this interview, Robin and I talk about the difference between confidence as a feeling and a belief, examples of confidence hijacks for you to consider what are your confidence hijacks, why confidence is a job, four research backed ways to grow confidence and advice for coaches, leaders and parents on how to build confidence. If you'd like to see the full show notes and a description of this podcast, you can head over to cindracampoff.com/571. And if you haven't already, please leave us a rating and a review. You can just scroll up to provide that rating and review and we'd be so grateful. It just helps us reach more and more people each and every week and helps us grow the influence of the podcast so more people can learn about mental training and performance psychology. All right, I know you're going to love this one. Without further ado, let's bring on Robin. Welcome to the High Performance Mindset Podcast. I'm so excited to be talking to Robin Veely today. Um, Robin, you've just had such a major impact on this field. I've read so many of your you know, research. I use your coaching for the Inner Edge book in one of my classes. I think it's the best book in coaching psychology out there. And as I was thinking about interviewing you today, I, like there's um, – You know, I think the first time I went to ASP and I saw you and I didn't even want to introduce myself, I was so intimidated. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, there's Robin Veely. So here I get to interview you. I just think what you've done is just outstanding. And I I think you're one of the legends in sports psychology. That's what I would say.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So let's get started. And maybe tell me a little bit about or tell those who are listening a little bit about your passion and what you're doing right now
1: yeah well i've got a lot of passion for the field of sports psychology and um so i guess i would say to you my passion is what i call the achieving mentality i've always when i was a kid and i would go watch sporting events i mean i noticed the best players but i was always drawn to the players that worked the hardest or were the mentally toughest or i mean I just I'm so interested in that, not only in sport, but it kind of in all areas. So, so yeah, and I play golf and so I try to apply that all of this to my golf game, which maybe doesn't always work, but but anyway, my research has taken me from the negative side maybe of that achieving mentality in terms of anxiety and burnout, to the side looking at confidence, mental skills, how can coaches be better? I'm really interested in coaching behavior because I come from a coaching and playing background. So, so yeah, so that has dovetailed my passion for sport and performance and how can we help people be better in both of those.
0: When you think about what made you decide to, you know, get a PhD in this area, and I know you studied with Rainer Martins at the University of Illinois, and there's some other people that were your classmates that were some of my mentors, but tell us a little bit about you know, just your journey to studying this and what it was even like to, you know, be with Raynor Martins there at Illinois. Well, I tell my students today, I said, imagine going to grad school
1: and there are no textbooks on sports psychology. Nobody that I knew of um, was doing applied work. It was very lab-based research. And I was recruited by Reiner. And I, I think I became interested in sports psychology because I was a coach because I was a college basketball player and so I was really interested in the applied stuff so when I got there he and Damon Burton were starting to work on that and he worked with the U.S. ski team and got me hooked in with them and U.S. field hockey so it was a really exciting time we were doing work in competitive anxiety so I was learning about the research and all of that but we also were like writing things about the, the applied aspects and imagery and self-talk and things, there, again, there were no textbooks. There were maybe two right. sports psych books. Journal of sports psychology began in 1979. So it was really exciting to be, when you said yeah. premier, it was not because I've done it but just because I entered at the right time. And I feel so blessed to have seen sports psychology grow um, as it has. So it was a very heady time. Mm-hmm. And I give Reiner mm-hmm. a lot of credit for teaching me how to work hard, teaching, you know, and, and helping me love it mm-hmm. as much as I do because he really instilled that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious what you've seen just in your career at the, the growth of sports psychology. You know, I think about uh, I entered the field um, trying to think of like 20 some years ago. And like, gosh, that makes me feel really old <laughs> as I say that because um, it seems like yesterday. But I've also seen just this exponential growth in the last five years and more people talking about it and being open to it and the stigma going away in terms of, hey, you know, it's it's more of like an edge to train the mental game. than there's something wrong with you. And I think that's really freeing because we've all known that. Um that it's about what you just said about the achieving mentality and being the best you can be. But what have you seen from your perspective about the growth? Oh,
1: it's it's incredible. I think for me, the motivation was, again, when I got to Illinois, we were doing this applied work. And you know what, Sindra, the field didn't accept a lot of it early on. We presented it at a NASPA conference in um, 84, I think. And uh, there were people that were not happy that we were doing applied work because you see the field at that time mm-hmm. was still lab oriented and they wanted the science to be really respected and they thought that would take away from that but of course we plowed on and i think for me my motivation behind my work and in the book that you mentioned the coaching psychology book is to make it practical to make it useful to help people yes. for the reasons that you said and i yeah. lately just last semester i taught a class in mental health for athletes and not in clinical mental health, but mental health and the idea of thriving and um, you know, using these skills for personal development and personal growth. And I've just included that in my mental skills model. I put mental health right in there along with mental skills. So yes, I, I, think, I, I think we've really come a long way. I think we're still working on that mm-hmm. stigma. We have a study going on right now where we're looking at that. We're looking at college athletes and college students in terms of their perceptions of um, of stigma related to mental health um, counseling, seeking that. And we're looking at athlete identity kind of in stress related to that. So I'm excited to move my work into that area
0: more, mm-hmm. really embrace it. Absolutely. So I think your book is, um, Coaching for the inner edge. And I and I do actually think it's the best book out there on coaching psychology. And I would say that not to you, but to and everyone, you know, who's listening. But I think it's what I love about it is it is really practical. Um, even some of the worksheets in the back, I've used with some of the athletes I work with, just because it's um it is really easy to read. It's under easy to understand. And I think the mental game for coaches can be really hard to implement. So what makes made you decide to write that particular book many years ago about coaching psychology?
1: Because I wanted to take all of our ideas in sports psychology and be an integrator of knowledge, write it for coaches and try to make it as practical as I could. And and you know, the other thing, I read a lot of books written by coaches Mm -hmm. and I put in the preface of that I learn a lot from coaches. I learned a lot from coaches here that I work with. In fact, I acknowledge, them, so I acknowledge the coach that I've worked with here for 40 years. And so, yes, I wanted to make sure early on, we used to say, oh, people aren't using this. People don't believe in sports psychology. And I think they did, but I don't think they knew how. And so I wanted mm-hmm. to try to start helping them with the how. Here's ways that you okay. can implement some of these ideas.
0: Is there a particular section in that book that you're really proud of or as people learn more about it who are listening and you'd say, hey, you know, definitely read this section. I'm curious about that. Well, I
1: agree with you in that I like the appendices because I tried to put a lot of practical exercises back there. And so the book from chapter seven on back, it's all about mental training. So mm-hmm. I would probably start like in chapter seven and then you get into goals, the self-talk, mm-hmm um imagery so it's just the basics of kind of mental training and i tried to in each chapter give them ideas about how they could implement it um mm-hmm. probably my favorite chapter would be the self talk i call it p3 thinking mm-hmm. you know the idea that you're being very productive you're thinking on purpose and you're thinking very present moment we know that's how athletes need to think so i kind of conjured it up as the 3p's if you will and these are kind of the mon- so i that's the chapter that i that I probably is my favorite for, you know, yeah. I think it's something that you can plug right into.
0: Yeah. And really useful and practical and maybe is consistent with, you know, the, the research you've done about confidence. Um, Yeah, and I I really like that because I like the P3 thinking. I like the imagery chapters and the mental tools chapters. I just think it makes it really digestible. And when I think about my experience as an athlete, when I first learned about sports psychology, the struggle I had was actually how to implement it. Yes. And I would, you know, I read a lot of the theories, and I even talked to a sports psychologist, but it was too theoretical for me. I needed like the how, and I think that's one of the, you know, strengths of your work is that it's informed by theory and research, but it's how. Great. Yes. Thank you. That's, th- that's mm-hmm. what we're trying for, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's dive into confidence. And maybe first, why don't you define, um, we're going basic level here, but I think like we need to do that because, you know, get on to really understand your perspective. So tell us a bit about how you define confidence. And in your opinion, why is it really, why is it important?
1: Well, confidence is, is you believe you can do something. And it's based, typically it's belief in your abilities to do something. Although I like to say it's also your resources. I may not have the ability. I'm not putting well today, but you know what? I can get the ball in the hole. I I can be an athlete. So it's belief in my abilities, my resources to succeed at something. So that's kind of it. It's, It's important because I think those beliefs, I think it modifies everything that happens to you. (laughs) <laughs> um, where I'm just use a golf example. When I triple bogey or hit one out of bounds, you know, it's then my belief that I can get out of this. Like I tell my playing partners, I like to scramble. I don't mean scramble in a group, but I be, I like it when I get in trouble because I tell myself, okay, because I'm really good at getting out of trouble. I'm really good at hitting a recovery shot that just deflates my opponents. So it's my belief in my resources not to play perfectly. And I think that's where we go wrong. Yeah. People think confidence yeah. is that everything's going to go right. And actually your confidence is more important in terms of how you feel about being adaptive when things go wrong. So I just think it's incredibly important.
0: Yeah. Isn't that so true? And that, you know, one of the things I've observed about confidence is as I think about the people I work with, and that might be athletes, but I also work with a lot of leaders and executives. And it's almost like um, the older we get, you would think that the more confidence we would have because we have more experience. But what I found is that particularly when people are really pushing themselves out of their comfort zone, trying new things or getting into bigger roles, that their confidence really can waver. And, and I think that it, it just seems like it's a common theme coming up in my work. And um, I wonder if that's, it's always been that way or if there's something with society and dynamics and um, people being really critical of each other I don't know, is there anything that you've seen in terms of the importance of confidence now compared to to 10 years ago? Or do you think it's always been this important?
1: Well, I know know what you mean. I think Mm -hmm. it's always been this important. I, you know, to use your example, I was on a panel at an ASP conference a few years ago and I was with Dan Gould and Justin Sua. They're both major leaders big time um, consultants, work with professionals, Olympians. And we got a question from the audience. You all know what the imposter syndrome is. And you know, it's when you feel like it. And did did you all ever experience all three of us raised our hands?
0: Exactly. And
1: I mean, I knew I was going to raise my hand, but I didn't expect these guys to Mm. raise their hands. And then we all talked Mm. about it, but you Mm. see, but, Mm. but it doesn't, I, I think that's okay. And if you've read, um, um, Adam Grant's book, Rethinking, he talks about confident humility. And I think that's what I'm trying to get athletes, what I'm trying to get my students to have, where meaning that maybe the imposter syndrome isn't so bad because I'm always thinking about how I can be better. I'm always, and so Mm -hmm. I'm afraid that people misunderstand confidence as I'm always feeling comfortable. See, confidence is a belief, but it's also a feeling. And it's Mm -hmm. the feeling that gets us in trouble because I think. Younger athletes are—they think that—and coaches are like, "You need to be confident." And I think, mm. and then I don't feel confident. Then I'm like, "Oh heck, I don't feel confident. I'm in trouble." And the feeling is really hard to manufacture because confidence is based upon performance and beliefs. I mean, in your performance, so how am I supposed to be confident when I'm not performing well? I mean, right. really. And right. then, how right. do I get? I mean, the belief is really hard to just conjure up. So. So I, I feel like sometimes you have to act. And so one thing I ask athletes a yeah. lot is, have you ever performed well in the short term, at least when you're not confident? And they go, yeah. And I'm so, so, you know, my, my word now to athletes is act. Act when you're feeling uncomfortable because they believe, especially high school athletes that I talk to, well, I'm not feeling comfortable, something's wrong. As you well know, Sindra, I've heard this from Ken Revisis, so many consultants, you have to be comfortable with discomfort. You have right. to, it. So, and part of that discomfort is I'm not sure how I'm going to do, but you know what? I believe in me. I believe in my adaptability. Sorry. We're having some kind of a tornado thing here.
0: I know. So, so I just got that on my phone. I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what it is.
1: So, um, Oh, it's a national alert. Okay. It's a. they're just <laughs> testing something. Sorry. But anyway, <laughs> this is an important point because I really think that, um, that when I, t- when I tell athletes, what do I do when I'm not confident? Focus, perform, just do something in that moment because then when you perform and you're okay, then you get back into the task and you become more confident. So I, so I think yeah. this belief versus feeling, I think that gets us in trouble mm-hmm. sometimes. And in fact, sorry, I'm just going to go on here. Um, yeah, it's perfect. I have this model of mental skills and then I've got it divided into what I call personal foundation skills and performance skills. So I think at the moment of performance It's a matter of what you focus on, maybe how you manage your energy, maybe perceptual cognitive. I mean, I'm thinking about what I'm going to do to hit the six iron, but it's my focus and my swing thought, whether I'm confident or not. I mean, I need Mm -hmm. to leave that alone. In fact, I would say at the moment of performance, quit talking about and thinking about confidence and just perform, you know, because then you perform and then usually if you hit a decent shot, okay, then you believe you can do it. So I don't know if I'm making sense, but I think sometimes Mm -hmm. we expect to feel confident and think we have to feel confident to perform well and read Mm -hmm. any athlete, Tiger Woods, Serena Williams, all
0: of them will talk about how they have to perform when they're really nervous or when they're feeling a lack of confidence. And so I think sometimes we can overthink or question those feelings of confidence and then we get in our head and think we're not confident and then it just becomes a cycle and we're not present in the moment and can't perform the way we ultimately want to.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure if I finished that earlier thought, but to me, confidence is a foundation skill. It's something that I have going in. At the moment of performance, I just want to focus and hit my six iron. I'm not going to maybe do something in that moment. I mean, what I would do in that moment would be my pre-shot routine, but I'm not trying to conjure up confidence that came on the range that came in my physical yeah. and mental preparation. It came from all of that. And so mm-hmm. I think, in, in what I call execution mode, I tell coaches don't even talk about confidence. I mean, when we're in the game day hours leading into competition, very simple thoughts. I'm feeling prepared, very <laughs> clear. What's my job. And mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't walk up to somebody and say, hey, are you confident? Uh, because they're going to go, no, I think
0: so. Because they're going to start second guessing. Questioning themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
1: I really mm-hmm. move
0: more to that that way. So I think what you're saying in terms of the imposter syndrome, that it's normal for those feelings of confidence can be high and then low. And it's more about focusing on the task at hand, maybe riding that wave, not overthinking it. That means that you lack confidence or you aren't confident as a performer or a person
1: correct because elite athletes sports psychology consultants will tell you confidence is so fragile and it's not easily restored I mean it's it's it and so quit waiting for it to emerge and just act and so what I tell athletes is you know something hijacks I I call it a hijack a confidence hijacked okay so, you know, get control of yourself, you know, breath, et cetera. Think about your next play, what you have to do. One very controllable, manageable thing. Don't try to make the great play. Like when I've had a triple, quadruple bogey, my next focus is to hit a solid drive. Not a great drive, just a mm-hmm. solid drive. That's going to get me back on my horse and going versus, to, oh, come on, be confident. And that's not it. It's like, what do I need to do to hit this next drive in a very solid way? So get right into the task, if you will, because we know although confidence does predict performance, we know that performance predicts confidence in a much stronger way. So it really helps to just start performing. Then you get into that, then you're feeling better and
0: to be okay with performing when you're not feeling extremely comfortable. That's okay. You could do it if you've trained. Yeah. If you've trained it. And so as you think about confidence as a foundational skill, right? Because I appreciate that you just said that as people are thinking about, gosh, maybe I need to grow my confidence as a foundational skill, what are the ways your research has shown? And, you know, I was, I had, I I did some preparation for today and I, I I read your Vita and I was like, whoa, I think I counted um, 34 and it was a couple years old, 34 research articles, most of them about confidence. So what would you say are the research backed ways that people can build confidence as a foundational skill?
1: Well, I like to divide the research into very practical uh, ways that that coaches and athletes remember them. So in the book, I have this where I talk about um, validation, perspiration, Mm -hmm. regulation, inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. So you can remember those are kind of fun. And so all the research that's been done on building confidence could fall in those four areas, but it's an easy way to remember it. And so, um, so uh, let's start with perspiration because that's the best place to start. You have to earn the right to be confident. Confidence is a job, and not a gift. It's a mm. job. And you mm. if you take any shortcuts, you're in trouble. I mean, you have to put in the work. Because think about it. If I want to believe, I have to believe that I've done the work. I mean, we our research has shown that preparation is one of the top sources of confidence, like how I'm prepared to do that. So that's all of the perspiration, if you will, like putting and, work. And so, of course, what coaches do is they create training situations where they simulate pressure and they do reps. I mean, all of that's really, uh, really important. And for example, I'm sorry, I keep using golf examples, but they pop into my mind. You know, when you hit a golf shot during a tournament, and when you compare that to hitting a golf shot on the range, those are totally, completely different tasks for your brain and your body. I mean, other than holding, the, I mean, they're completely different. So, so you have to, as a coach or athlete, you've got to simulate pressure, uh-huh. you know, and so that might be playing different holes. It's just, you have to set things up differently. So you're training yourself in the right ways and creating consequences, et cetera. I mean, you have to do that because as what a lot of athletes say about coaches they really admire is like, well, games are easier, competition's easier than our practice and our training because they've given them, they've gone through the perspiration and that gives them the foundation then to be confident. So that is numero uno, without a doubt, it's a job. You have to earn the right to do it. And um, that has to come first. So the second one would be the validation. And that's what, what, again, all the research, especially coming out of self-efficacy theory, is that, you know, the strongest predictor of confidence is your accomplishments. So Uh you've validated yourself in terms of your performance accomplishments. But that's a little bit of a tricky thing, isn't it? Because, well, what if I haven't won? Or what if I haven't? Well, this is where you have to define success yourself. I always talk about dying it D Y E define your experience, define your experience. And um, I know I'm working with a team here right now and they're young. And so the outcomes aren't as great. They're not winning. And so we have to focus so much on the process and what is successful and the stats. And you know what, Sandra, that's not easy. Uh-huh. That's no, not it's easy. not. We've got to define it's really hard because, and then look at society. Uh, you know, we know all the stories, but again, there's, if you go to the Olympics and you win the silver medal, people are like, oh, that's too bad. Right? Oh what do you mean it's, it's too bad? So we have to be really <laughs> smart and disciplined in terms of how we define our success and not let others do that for us. So that's the um, validation piece. The regulation is learning, is reading my book, <laughs> reading <Yeah>. all <laughs> stuff, listening to your podcasts, and learning how to self-regulate, learning how to find out. I like to work with athletes on... Uh, what hijacks your confidence. So we all have, com- we all, we all have hijacks. It could be, mm-hmm. I get a full that's rejected or the coach gives me negative feedback. I mean, mm-hmm. every outfit is different. And so we try to identify those hijacks and, you know, and they think once they identify it, we talk about it. Oh, okay. I'll fix it. No, you have to train that you have to train your brain. And so how do you do that? So mental rehearsal, we talk about, replacement language, how you're going to think about that, what you're going to say when the coach gives you feedback.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so
1: that's all oh, the ways you self-regulate. That's in how you talk to yourself, uh, what you, how you imagine, what you see. You know, I ask athletes after this, this match, we have a match tonight here. You know, when you replay it, do you replay your mistakes or your great plays? They all say, Oh, my mistakes. So right. we have to, you know, okay, okay. You can do that. But I ask them to do when you replay those mistakes, that's fine but I, have, I want you to replay it with how you would have done it correctly, how you would have succeeded if you could go back and do it. I so said, then you're doing something proactive, productive about it. So um, just your ability to manage your energy in that moment, right? Just to <laughs> learn to breathe, just to manage kind of how you are. So that's all the regulation that would be practically our whole field there. And then the final one would be the inspiration. And that would be, of course, all the people around you. We know that social persuasion or, you know, coaches supporting you, teammates supporting you. We know that that's all things that help athletes feel confident. I'll be honest, Sindra. I, I know that's important. And I work with some athletes who they really get hung up on that. The only reason I hedge a little bit on that, the research supports that, but you know, that's uncontrollable. I I, I think it's better to base your confidence on controllable sources yeah. And so you're not always going to control what your coach says to you or your teammates. It's nice to have all of that inspiration around you. And of course, you want to surround yourself with supportive people. But I prefer that athletes focus on the sources they control the most. But overall, if you take those four things, you can really build you know a nice program to help athletes feel more confident
0: absolutely so validation perspiration regulation inspiration if people are taking notes which i think they should i love that you said like confidence is a job not a gift and i thought i th- just think that's really powerful to say like it's my job to continue to grow my confidence or nurture my confidence or make sure that you know i'm i'm doing the things like the hard work to put in to build the confidence as i was listening i had this question and i wondered like from your perspective what you know and this is nature nurture kind of question but like you know do you think confidence is innate or trained or i don't know, can we can we say what percentage comes from um you know because i'm just thinking about my kids and i'm thinking about their confidence or i'm thinking about my sisters and our confidence and we had similar upbringings but there are some differences in confidence
1: yes i don't have a number for you Um, research supports that confidence is influenced by genetic factors. It just does, meaning it's partly inborn and, and, um, you you know, again, I, I can't even give you a percentage, but of course, if you think about personalities, it's like saying leadership, you know, leaders are, you know, leaders are not totally born. They learn these skills, same thing with confidence, but there are personalities, people that, that, that lends itself to that. So I think there are personalities that have mm-hmm. inborn qualities that allow people to be more confident. So, but the greater bulk of it is trainable. And yes. I just think for some people, actually, Sandra, I think it's more, so we know that occurs, but we can't do a lot yeah. to control that. I just think we understand it, but I like to look back Not necessarily on what were you born with, but Mm a lot of early messages. Because you know, when you talk to athletes and performers, as you know, you start you start listening to them, and there's these things that they've heard early in life that they start to believe. You know, I have to do this, or you know, I I, you know I'm gonna my family will be ashamed of me, or Mm -hmm. if I don't get my PGA card, I'm gonna be a failure. So, so I think a lot of it is when you think about working with young kids um, it's helping them with this whole growth mindset mentality. I know that's really a, a big term today, but it's critical where yeah. where yeah, you focus on the process. And I I'm a real big believer on the love of the game. So many times I am working with an athlete who's lost confidence. I'm like, okay, tell me about when you ran in high school, tell me, tell me about, you know, how that felt. And then, Oh, it was so much fun. And it was so free. And then, Things change when they got to college and they, they're right. focusing on all of this versus, wait a minute, tell me why you run. And so, can you go for a training run today? And I want you just to think about that and that feeling because we forget that. And, and sometimes I yeah. go to that on the golf course in a tournament and how much I just love playing golf and I'm outside and isn't this wonderful? And I think that really helps recenter us, if you mm-hmm. will. So, I, I got off the track there, but I, I, again, mm-hmm. part of it is born, but much more of it is trainable, is how it is.
0: Yeah, and I think that, I think that's why um, our field exists, is to help people train things like uh, the mental skill of, of confidence. And I appreciate what you said about the early messages about confidence and how those might impact you now. Hi, this is Cendra Kampoff, and thanks for listening to the High Performance Mindset. Did you know that the ideas we share in the show are things we actually specialize in implementing? If you want to become mentally stronger, lead your team more effectively, and get to your goals quicker. Visit freementalbreakthroughcall.com to sign up for your free mental breakthrough call with one of our certified coaches. Again, that's freementalbreakthroughcall.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. And when you see the barriers to confidence, what would you say are the main barriers you think get in the way of people building confidence as a foundational skill?
1: Well, if you think about... Again, you know, you've got to have the skills. So I would say, first thing, it would be a lack of skill, but then a fixed mindset about that, like meaning that I don't have the skill yet and, oh, I just stink and I'm not going to be good versus, hey, Mm -hmm. I'm learning this. I'm Mm -hmm. going to get better. So, um, you know, this is, you know, we have fast food, we have social media, everybody wants to just start something and get great at it. And yeah. it's amazing to me when I when you watch like elite level athletes, you read about Olympians, nobody just falls off the couch and is a great athlete. And when you read about and, and also success, success and achievement, it isn't this linear line. It's, it's I know. So, and you have we have got to get young athletes to, to understand that and buy into that. So I think it's that mm-hmm. that, that that ability to see that and then their commitment to build that skill, because that's where the confidence kind of comes from. And then I think the other things would be these personal hijacks. These are barriers. So so I don't spend a lot of time. um, I mean, I, I ask about their strengths because I think we focus too much on what we're not good at. But I always, you know, we play our strengths, we focus on those, and then we train our weaknesses. But part of training that weakness is what gets in the way. And it's what I call the confidence hijacks. And so, um, so for example, work with a swimmer. I've never worked with an athlete before who it all came down to the way that her coach talked to her, which, hey. you know, that was hard for me because at first I was trying to get her to change. I could not get her to change. And so then we talked about working with her coach. We tried that. But I mean, this was like her major hijack. So I really had to work on it. So we came up with a whole scenario. If your coach does this, this is kind of how you respond. We, we focused on that. So what is it that keeps you from believing that you can do it? What is it that hijacks? And then we come up with a plan for that. And then we just, we rehearse and we rehearse and we rehearse so they can work through that. But you have to do, you have to do that work. You can't just talk to Robin Veal or send her camp off and like, okay, now I got it. You have to do the work. People want you to come into my office and me to do the Spock mind meld and walk out in 30 minutes and they're confident. (laughs) Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if it was just like a light switch? You know, I'm not not Vulcan. I'm not stuck. I'm not Spock. So yes, they (laughs) have to kind of do that work. And part of that is just, again, changing maybe the thinking of that. And, you know, a, a big thing I run into with high school athletes is their ability to respond to mistakes. So, yeah. um, you know, the other barrier I think is that we, we are afraid of that. We're afraid of that. And then we react to that and, you know, um, I, I think in our society where we're specializing and there's all this pressure on kids and you get us college, that isn't helping us because they're yeah. not falling in love with the sport and they're just kind of playing it. So, you know, you have to be okay with making mistakes. I don't know if you know this example, but this is one of my favorite examples. So if you read Gino Ariema's book, Gino Auriemma is the coach of the UConn Women's Basketball Team. Yeah, amazing. So he coached Maya Moore, one of the greatest of all times. And when she came in, she was a perfectionist. And so Gino was trying to get her outside her comfort zone to make mistakes in practice and she wouldn't go there. So he ordered her. Okay. He said, you're required every day in practice to make five mistakes. And at the end of practice, I want you to tell me what they were. That's awesome. Then, so so we have to not only tell kids mistakes are okay, we have to do yeah. that. like, And then like, hey, good job. Okay, now what are you going to do based upon that? Good job extending yourself to make a mistake. The other example I use, Wayne Gretzky was known for at the end of practice, he'd be out on the ice doing things and he would fall down. And someone said, what's he doing? And, and, and the coach said, he's trying new things. And sometimes he falls down because he's trying something new. This was Wayne Gretzky. Wow. Right. We have young athletes who are afraid to make a mistake. So they have to be okay. And I like mistake rituals, you know, like Mm -hmm. shake it off, wipe the sweat off your brow, take your hat off. And then as a team, you can have a mistake ritual and you can make it fun. So we're trying to take that sting and that permanency and that fear away from mistakes of, hey, I just made a mistake because I'm trying hard. And of course, I've coached and I know that some athletes that don't make mistakes, are the ones that are playing it safe that aren't leaving yes. really the comfort zone, they're afraid to go into the learning zone to make yeah. mistakes. So then I would order them and I would set up a pre-practice routine for them or something to have them make mistakes. So I think you have to find ways when you're coaching to kind of do that. If I'm a basketball coach. There's a difference in missing a shot, you know, or taking a bad shot or passing up an open shot. Those are all things that you can coach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, missing a shot isn't a problem with confidence. Passing up a mm-hmm. shot is, so in your sports, I think coaches and practitioners can look for ways to do that to help athletes ease out of that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. A
0: big, big, big thing. So important. And I'm just like, you know, as I think about the power of everything that you just said, another example I can think of outside of sport is a woman named Sarah Blakely. So Sarah Blakely founded a company called Spanx. And she said, so Sarah Blakely became the first self-made female billionaire in the U.S. from this company called Spanx, right? And it's the undergarment women where now they have all these other things that you can get at Spanx. But she credits her success to her dad, who every single night at the dinner table would ask her and her brother the same question. And the question was, how did you fail today? And she said that if she didn't come home with a big failure, her dad would be disappointed. So she learned that like when she was starting this company, there's lots of times that she could have given up, but it was like this fail forward kind of mentality that it's like, hey, these failures are leading me to something really powerful. And I'm like, you know, a lot of people love spanks <laughs> because of her. No, that's great. Yeah, I think struggle well,
1: fail well. You know, a, a, coaching, a friend of mine is a college coach. When she um, recruits players, when she goes and watches them, she likes to see how they respond in failing moments. Mm -hmm. She's not just looking at their successful moments, but how do you respond in failing moments? And there's all these things you can do. Back to our regulation, I'm a huge on body language. You know, Mm -hmm. we work and work and work on that. And you could say the old "fake it till you make it." Well, there's could be holes in that, but. I really believe that, you know, when I have a big, big talk or something I need to do, I'm really nervous, but I'm also yeah. confident. I believe I can do this, but you know, I, my body language is I believe in myself and I'm putting that out there. And I think this gets back to, them, to the inspiration too, because your team learns that we talk about taking the, taking over the floor and our warmups, winning the warmups, all of these things that you do. And I think a lot of athletes get confidence from that as well. You know. So we talk about self-confidence, but confidence is nested, right? So there's self-confidence. Mm-hmm. There's cohort confidence. The pitcher and the catcher, you know, the linebackers, all of that. There's the coach's confidence. There's the team conf. All of that. And our research shows that those things are related. Even organizational confidence. If you play within a great organization, that gives you something. So you want all those layers to be positive, you know. And as yeah. a coach. You, we know that your confidence not only your confidence in your players your athletes but your confidence in yourself influences their self confidence as well
0: yeah so helpful so as i think about different confidence hijacks you know other confidence hijacks i see in 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 people not just athletes but in people are like um comparison where they might You know, oh well. So she has so much more success, or he has so much more success than I do. There's no way that I could actually do that, right? So some self doubt, some judgment of self. Are there any other big confidence hijacks you see?
1: Yeah, comparison is a big one, uh, I would say. Um, Of course, you know, uh, in sport there are, especially in youth sport. When I work with kids, it would be the unrealistic uh, Uh goals and expectations and um, yeah, we like this whole way of focusing on or pressuring kids to specialize. It's created this idea where you have to then perform mm-hmm. really well when you're nine or ten in one sport, and what happens is they become very self-conscious because they're the ice skater. You know, they're the, the, the basketball player and, they're, and that becomes pressure. And so this kids need to sample a lot of things. And in fact, it helps them if they're doing multiple activities. Then when they're in their favorite sport, if they then my favorite sport is, say, volleyball. But then I run track in the spring. That gives me a time just to, like, perform and not have to be a leader or not have to be the best. It really helps them. When I talk to college coaches and athletes, they all tell me that. So the other big one, of course, is um, the wrong goals. Yeah, sure. And just um, and when I talk to teams on campus and athletes, you know, to be their goal is to be a conference champion or I, I just work with a team here and we were doing an exercise and the guy wanted to be player of the year and, you know, all American. And and so, OK, those aren't necessarily a bad thing to have those goals, but sure. your goals have to give you something to hang your hat on. And so. um what else, what can I do to help me get there? It's, it's you know, those are just, again, uh, another book I really like is Atomic Habits by James Clear. And he <laughs> talks about, you know, goals are okay to set your direction, but what's more important is your system. And so yeah. your system is, is how you're gonna get there. And so yeah. I, I feel like athletes today, because they look at the Michael Phelps and and, and, and these highly level successful athletes, and they think that, well I'm just gonna have to have this goal. No, focus on the, the, the process, the next performance yeah. step, or just playing because you enjoy it. I think goals are a major hijack. And and, yeah. and, and then one more, I would just say, are, are performance errors. And so I feel like sometimes people think that sports psychology, you know, we use imagery, we use visualization. And I think what I find is a lot of my undergraduate students think that, oh, I know I'm supposed to visualize everything going perfect. I'm like absolutely not because how many times in your life does everything go perfect, and so it's fine to see yourself to visualize to have like a personal highlight reel and to visualize past um, successful performances, but what's more more helpful is to visualize performing and something going wrong and then something. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really big on being adaptive. In fact, my little mantra, my little tagline is I want you to have an agile mindset. And so to be confident, people think that means I'm confident and then everything's going to go perfectly. Nothing ever goes perfectly. Mm -hmm. So something's going to go wrong. And so you want to think about what are my typical confidence hijacks, but also what is a confidence hijack that I haven't even thought about? And I am going to have, Sindra, the toughest, the best Agile mindset that whatever you throw at me, I'm going to adapt to that. So that's what I work with in teams and athletes that whatever happens. And I always like to say we respond, we don't react. React is emotion, it's hot. Respond Mm -hmm. is cool thoughts. I'm going to respond. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a breath. Okay. I just, I just hit a shank. I just hit a, a bad performance. I just, you know, passed a serve out of bounds. I know they're going to serve to me now. Take a breath, say, serve me. I mean, something I have to respond to that. So I'm going to respond, not react. We have to train that, right? We have to train that because our amygdala, our emotion center in our brain wants to really hijack us. And we've got to just breathe and tell myself next play, next shot, I've got this, I'm good at this and remind myself I can do it.
0: Absolutely. And those are definitely like skills we have to practice, I think daily, you know, oh, <laughs> as we think about not daily. taking a day off of training our mind. Robin, you you're you were talking about coaches and I love the examples you gave of coaches, really helpful as people are listening. What do you think coaches and parents can do to really build confidence? Yeah. Well, I mean, um,
1: I, I I would be very careful about talking about confidence I, I think we know it's important mm-hmm. but i think it's become a buzzword okay. and so i think coaches will say okay i want you to be confident or don't so i think you should be careful about that and and what i've done is i've gone to use the term belief and mm. like, like i did a, okay. a with the team and uh, um so and, and i'll even do this with individual athletes where i'll start with Tell me one of the most deep seated beliefs you have about yourself. I mean, just whatever. Okay. Mine might be the lessons I learned from my parents that I'm a good person. I mean, that, you know, I, I believe that in my core of my being. So, but I'll start with one or two of those because I think sometimes in the heat of competition or when life challenges us, I, I know I go back to my core beliefs. And so yeah. then we'll go to what's the belief you have as an athlete that can help you? So, for example, one of mine on the golf courses, I might not be putting well, I might, but you know what? I'm an athlete. And I go to that. I'm an athlete. You know what? I'm the best athlete out here. And so I try to help them. And we take like I use little racquet balls and I have them write like one or two keywords on the racquetball. And the ball represents their bounce, right? Their bounce, their roll. And this is you. And you're gonna bounce. And so what is it? And so like my ball says athlete, it says patient, and it says next shot. And it nice. reminds me I'm patient. I'm an athlete and next shot. So I think, yes, I'm going to, you know, be ready for that. So um, I think the other thing would be a, 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 for some reason, I think we have to make mistakes. OK, as we talked about earlier. So besides not talking about confidence, I think you talk about beliefs and, you know, you try to get them. Oh, excuse me. Let me get back to beliefs. One other thing I'll do, I'll say in a team is. Tell me one belief or one thing on this team that when we do as a team that really increases your belief. I have them work in pairs, small groups. They write that down then we come back and we talk about that. So you're working on individual beliefs and then team beliefs. And so they really like that. I never even bring up the word confidence, but we know it's the same thing. So what helps us believe? And then maybe what helps us believe, you know, a pregame in the locker room and what things that you're doing. And then we'll do little things like I'll give a little handout and what's it really helps me when coaches do this. And then I'll kind of give that feedback to coaches. Coaches could ask their athletes, what kind of things help you? What kind of things take away? What kind of feedback would you like for me to give you during? And I don't mean that everything's according to athletes' preferences, but it just gives <laughs> you an idea. So that's, a, that's a, I think, a big part of it would be. Um, I mean, the other thing with, with coaches, of course, I mean, train, be an excellent teacher, You're training these skills. I mean, lots of times they don't even talk about the mental aspect, but, but they're talking about it all the time, even though they're not saying the mental game, because And the way they're setting up pressure and simulation and just training and attention to detail, because then in competition, those things don't fall apart. So, um, I think there's those things. Um, I know that athletes always tell me that it gives them confidence when their coaches believe in them. I I think you got to be careful with that because coaches will say to me, okay, I don't want to be saying false things. I'm like, I I agree. But um, I I think, but, but you check in with them and Hey, what's your job tonight? So let's say that our starting point guard got hurt. So I got a a young point guard. Okay. Tell me what your job is tonight. And we might go through it. I want you to get the ball off the floor, set the offense, play good defense, forget about scoring or forget about this. I want you to run through your mind. What happens if you make a turnover? OK, run through in your mind. How are you going to respond to that? What your body language is going to look like? It's just one turnover and you're handling the ball a lot. So, of course, you're going to turn the ball over. It's OK. You know, and then my feedback to them is it's OK because that's a mistake. And we have a mistake ritual and it's OK. And I'm going to touch the floor and kind of get rid of that. So all of the ways that I think that you train people um, in those in those ways
0: can help them. That's wonderful. I mean, such practical tools and strategies. Do you have any advice for parents? As I think there's lots of parents who listen, and I know you're a parent yourself.
1: Yes, yes. Well, I can tell you, um, boy, you really need to train this growth mindset. And what we know, and a growth mindset means, again, that I perceive that my ability, my skills are are malleable. I can, They're buildable. I can work on those. I, and it's not like I have this fixed ability, and I'm never going to get good. And so what the research is Carol Dweck's research and other people, the most important thing you can do is to give process praise, praise, Mm -hmm. not just the outcome. And it's so if my son wins his heat at a swim meet, I'm really excited. But instead of going up saying, hey, way to win your heat, I can say, hey, great job on your heat, Your, your work on your flip terms have really paid off. You work yeah. so hard. And Cinder, I know this because I have two children. And my first yeah. child, when she was five, she'd score a lot of goals in biddy soccer. And we'd get real excited about the goals, created a monster. And so then a few years later, there was a fun run in town. It was a mile fun run. I'm like, hey, why don't you run in this? She goes, no, I'm afraid I won't win. Right. I created, I created this because I praise the outcomes the research is really clear on this. If, if you praise that, and it's really hard not to do, it's hard not to do Mm -hmm. listening. Just trust me on this because it's, it, it really, really works. So be excited about the outcomes, you know, the straight A's or that you've done this, but you've been working so hard, you know, or just great decision-making out there tonight, you know, things, you want to praise things that they can control. And that really, because if you only praise the outcomes, That does two things. One is they feel pressure to do that. And then sometimes, like my daughter, she didn't want to engage in the behavior because she was afraid she would change my approval of her. So praise the process. That is just so very important. And and that would be then, then the second thing would be all the stuff we've talked about with mistakes. Mistakes are okay. And I make mistakes. And I think you model that growth mindset, you model your acceptance of mistakes, you model. What you learn from that, and and that how I do that, yeah, this really hurt, you know. And uh, I got an article rejected today, and I was really mad at the editor. But then I looked at it and I realized, you know what, I can do this better. And yeah, uh, and even if I disagree with this with him or her, then I can still learn from this. So you have to model that all the time.
0: I'm curious, what did you do with your daughter? Because I know that there's people who are who are in the same boat or that you were right where they're because I actually think we did this with my oldest son. We didn't mean to, <laughs> and it's like, well, how do you now undo that? Yeah. Great question.
1: Well, my partner and I realized it. And so then we talked about it and we just went, we just started process, process, process. And it took, yeah. it took a lot of time. And actually, yeah. interestingly, she's in graduate school now at arts very good. But even when she was in undergraduate um, she was like, well, I don't think my portfolio is good enough yet. I'm going to wait. I, s- I would say, it, you know, that doesn't matter. I don't think other people in your, you know, go ahead and put your portfolio out there. And so now she's in graduate school and at an art school and she had professionals come in to look at her portfolio and they said it was okay. I'm like, see, so we just keep focusing on it. Of course, then she got older and we talked to her about it. But what's funny is that our son, who was two years younger than her, we just praise the heck out of his process <laughs> because we learned from our firstborn. And I can remember still, I remember when they won the eighth grade cross country championship. Can you believe that? And he ran so hard. He was dry heaving.
0: Oh. And I
1: was excited they won, but I, and I remember I was like, okay, hey, process, process. I'm like, Jackson, that is so great. You have trained so hard. And I remember the exact moment focusing on how hard he trained and how much he'd worked. And I can't believe you put in all that effort your team should thank you so much. So you can you can do it. You can go back. It just takes a little bit
0: of time to kind of redo that. Yeah, bust. that's beautiful. I appreciate this the personal example and how you know. I think that personal example also shows you that Dr. Veely is not perfect either. You <laughs> might know all this research. Uh, you know, uh, man, this interview just exceeded my expectations. I I was so excited to talk to you because I knew it would be just. What I just heard in the last 50 minutes—so many practical ways. I mean, I just am so grateful for you that you spent time helping um, thousands of people who are listening to really like be able to uh, implement and not only grow in their own confidence as a foundational skill, but help others. So I'm going to do my best to summarize what we talked about. I don't know how how I'll do, but um, I love that we talked about that there's this feeling of confidence and this belief of confidence, and those are different. And we talked about how confidence is a foundational skill. You shared how performance predicts confidence and confidence predicts performance, but that performance predicts confidence stronger. And you shared your your four ways of growing confidence, validation, perspiration, regulation, inspiration. And um, we were just also talking about having an agile mindset, how you deal with mistakes, this idea of like confidence um hijacks and the ways to grow in that and i would encourage everyone to think about what are your confidence hijacks i think that that's a really a great way to kind of talk about it and at the end this idea of like praising the process versus the outcome so coaching for the inner edge um that's the book i know everyone needs to pick up even if they're not a coach cuz everyone who's listening is a leader in some way and it will continue to help you understand the just performance psychology principles um How can people reach out to you or is there, how else can people follow along with your work, Dr. Veely?
1: Yes, like anybody can email me. That's probably the best way. And I, I, you know, I teach at Miami University in Ohio. They could just go to that website and find me. And I would love to hear from people. I always like to respond to emails, parents, coaches, anyone, feel free to do that.
0: Excellent. Well, do you have any final thoughts or advice that people no. ask Is there? No. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I just wanted to thank you, Sandra.
1: And again, I like your energy. I think we kind of feed off each other. And I really appreciate that you do this program with the yeah. whole practical tips. I just think it's so important. So I really, really enjoy it. Again, that's my passion to talk to practitioners and try to help take the sports psychology to give to them. So I hope if anybody got one tip today, they can use that would
0: make absolutely my- Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for the impact that you've had on the field for spending time with us. I think we could have talked for 10 hours and it uh, you know, I could have uh, kept on writing notes. I did take some pages of notes, by the way, for everyone who's listening. If you didn't take notes, you should. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much, Robin. I'm so grateful and we're grateful that you spent some time with us today.